please remain seated for the sermon. <laughs> Sorry, Randy, that was too, too easy. Let's, let's open a word of prayer, shall we? Uh, Father, I'm so thankful for the gift of your people, these very people in this room, in this building with us. Uh, and they are such a tremendous gift from you. And I thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray this morning that you would uh, open it to us, would open our hearts to what you would, ha- what you would say. We ask all this in the, same, in, the, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I'm a, I'm a pastor here. And uh, if you didn't wear green today, I didn't either, so you don't, don't feel totally left out. Um, hopefully you didn't get pinched too hard. It actually made me think of those awful days in elementary school where you didn't wear green and you would get punched. I don't know if it was like even worse then. Anyway, I, don't, I won't make you relive that with me. Um, I hope you've been enjoying Open Here which is, if you're not familiar with, if you're new, you haven't been here, um, open here where we are as a church uh, journeying through the whole Bible in a year together. And uh, on Sunday morning, we're preaching uh, through the Bible. Uh, uh, not every chapter, obviously, there are too many. But, um, and uh, we're also getting in the habit, what we're trying to do is get in the habit together of opening God's Word every day. And uh, so if, if you're interested in that, if you're new, if you haven't jumped in yet, it's not, it's not too late, it's never too late. Uh, go on our website. There's plenty of information there about how you can get plugged in and how we can get our reading plans to you. And that's uh, really exciting. So hopefully if you're, like, if you're like me and you have been here for a while for Open Here, you're excited this morning, I hope, because we're starting a new mini-series in Open Here. It's on the history of Israel. So we finished the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and now we're into the history, which starts with Joshua. And we, we've creatively called this series History uh, because... <laughs> We figured that was the, the, as clear as we could make it. Um, and if you're starting, if, you're, if you've been in this, in this series with us, um, you're, you're excited. Here's why you're really excited today. It's, it mean, it's because if we're in a new series, it means that we've finished reading through Deuteronomy. Um, and uh, for those of you who don't know, if you haven't read Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy is God's word. It is, it is the book of the Bible that Jesus actually quotes the most in the New Testament. But it is also the most, it is the longest and most repetitive sermon uh, ever given in human history, as far as we can tell. So uh, you're probably excited, maybe like me, for some variety. Um, and you know, as I, as I thought about that this week, I, there's also an inherent danger in reading through a book like Deuteronomy for so long at one time. Um, I think uh, you can begin to lose sight, as, as you read Deuteronomy, of the big picture of God's story. And with it, the context for the rules and the warnings and the judgments that you read in Deuteronomy. And I don't know about you, but after a while, uh, I felt like God began to care more about the rules he was giving than about the people he was giving them to, and the people they were meant to protect. And now, don't, don't, don't uh, get me wrong, don't, don't mishear me, rules are a good thing, they're a healthy thing. Uh, they help us, they tell us who we are, and they tell us what's good for us, they teach us a way of life for our flourishing and for our good, but we often mishandle them as Christians, we often think that rather than being signposts for people God has already accepted and rescued, we think that rules actually are barriers to God that people must jump through in order to get access to him. Uh, we think they are a definition of the kind of person that God loves rather than a means of transformation for people he already loves and accepts by grace. Does that make sense? Uh, we, we often get in this rut, I think, as Christians. And then before you know it, you begin acting as if there are certain people, there are certain bad people uh, that, that God could never love. They are too far away. They are too hopeless. 
And you begin to think that what God is really looking for are religious people. I'm using religious there in a negative sense. People who, uh, who, who, who talk about how they read their Bibles all the time. People who say their prayers and they, they, they wear, you know, buttons-ups and khaki pants and they tuck their shirt in. And uh, people, who, people who, I know, it's a little jab at myself. Sometimes I don't tuck my shirt in. But seriously, we, we, think, of people, we think of people who don't make mistakes. We think of people who have all their ducks in a row. These are successful people. These are professional people. And suddenly, conformity becomes God's ultimate agenda in our mind, rather than people, rather than relationships, rather than reconciliation. And I still remember in my own experience, uh, back in college, I went to a a small Christian school, uh, when me and my friends, we would interact with this student there who was not a Christian, he didn't want to be there, uh, and he, you know, he, he partied a lot, and he, had, he really had some major psychological problems that he was wrestling through for the first time in his life. Had anger issues and, and all kinds of issues. He was not a popular person at school. And, and I still remember a conversation I had with him uh, where he was really, was, was, I remembered it was unusual because he was really sharing from his heart. He was really sharing about his life. And he was telling me, basically, how miserable he felt at school. And how lonely he was at this school because it was a place where people didn't look or think or act like he did. And of course, if you knew him, and this wouldn't surprise you, he was swearing up a storm as he, as he told me all this. Um, but God looked into that moment and, and he was giving me an opportunity to speak life into this young man's pain. But I looked at it and I saw an opportunity to talk to him about his problem with swearing. Right? God was looking to relate to and love a desperate person. And he was. He was desperate. But I was looking to make, to conform him, to make him in my own image. To make him like me. God was saying, Andrew, be a friend. And I was saying to him, follow the rules. And we think God is looking for clean people. That he's looking for people who are ready to turn their lives around. And nothing can be further from the truth. He's looking for something completely different in people. And and Christians and non-Christians this morning, we we all need to hear this because if you're a churchgoer, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you will have a tendency to think that God only uses people who look and think and act like you do and he doesn't. And if you are not a Christian, you will have a tendency to think that God only uses people who look and think and act like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa and he doesn't. He doesn't see as we see things. He does not look for the same things in people that we often do. He is not looking for religious people. He is not looking for virtuous people. He is not looking for conservative people. He is not looking for liberal people. He is not looking for successful people. He is not looking for influential people. He is looking for desperate people. He is looking for desperate people. And the proof is right here. This book is full of desperate people. People who have nothing, absolutely nothing, to offer God in exchange for his grace. Nothing. We've already read about a few of them in, in open here. We've, we've read about Abraham and Sarah. They were senior citizens with no children, which in their context was, meant you were a complete failure in life. They were desperate. God finds them. He makes them parents of an entire nation. And Moses, right? He's terrified of public speaking. Maybe he has a speech impediment. We don't, we don't know. It's possible. He is desperate to be left alone. But God finds him 
He makes him a prophet of Israel. And he makes him an emissary. He makes him an ambassador to the King Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth at the time. And you think of Israel, the whole nation. Is a, it's a rabble of ex-slaves. They can't fight. They can't farm. They cannot follow the most basic of instructions. They are desperate failures. They are nobodies, all of them. And yet they are each deeply loved by God. He is extravagantly merciful to each one of them. God does not see people the way that we do. And few stories in the Bible prove this point better than the one we are looking at this morning in Joshua chapter 2. It's the story of Rahab. Everyone in this story we're going to see is looking for something. The spies that are, sent, that are sent into Jericho are looking for a weak point in the city to attack. And the Canaanite soldiers who are in the city in Jericho are looking for the spies to root them out. Rahab is looking for a way to save her own skin. But what is God looking for in this story? What is he looking for? The first thing the story teaches us, and turn to Joshua 2 if you haven't already. The first thing that the story teaches us is that God is looking for desperate people. Desperate people. So at the beginning of this story in Joshua, we we are really picking up where Deuteronomy left off. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, there's a new generation of Israel that's arisen under a new leader named Joshua because Moses has died. And they are about, they are on the cusp of the promised land, and it's called Canaan. And they are about to be led in military conquest of the land of Canaan, which is the land that God promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before having everyone cross into the land, though, Joshua sends in these two spies, right? It's the beginning of chapter 2. He sends in two spies secretly into the city of Jericho. And that, that they're, they're interested in Jericho. It makes sense. It's a major city in Canaan. It is at the intersection of two major trade routes, two roads in Canaan. And for Israel to take Jericho would give them a tremendous strategic advantage for the rest of the battles they need to fight in this land. So Joshua sends these spies in and they, they, they sneak in into Jericho in verse 1 and then they do exactly what we expect them to do. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. Right? And you read that and you go, wait, what? Now, on the one hand, this shouldn't surprise us because this is a spy story and this is really the plot of every James Bond movie that's ever been made. <laughs> Right? But on the other hand, we're reading the Bible, <laughs> and we're thinking, what are these good Jewish boys doing at a brothel? That's a good question. Um, and it's, you know, the text doesn't say it's hard to tell, uh, but it's helpful to keep in mind that brothels in the ancient world were, could also function as more motels, as a place to lie low and to not attract a lot of attention, which would make sense if you're a spy. But regardless, right, the text doesn't say why they're there, because it's really not the point of the story. The story isn't about the spies. It's really not even about Israel. It's about desperate people like this prostitute, like Rahab. And it's hard to get more desperate than a woman like Rahab. Um, She has at least three big strikes against her in this story. Uh, First, she is a woman. And in the ancient world, in, in Canaan, if you were a woman, you were property. You had no rights. You had no power. You were You were basically nothing. Strike number one. Strike number two, she's a prostitute, which is a shameful occupation by almost any cultural definition, ancient or modern. So in Canaan, in her time, she is is tolerated. She is a necessary evil. She's a commodity. Uh, Her family is probably in disgrace over what she's done. 
Uh, In our world today, if she were here, we might think that we would treat her better, but we wouldn't. She would be a statistic. She would be the end result of bad parenting and bad schooling and bad choices. And either way, ancient or modern, no one is looking at this prostitute named Rahab and thinking, what a winner. What a success story. We all look at her and we have very little hope for her. So it's a good thing that only God's opinion of her really matters in the story. That's strike two. Strike number three, and this is the most devastating, this is the most important strike against her. She is a pagan Canaanite. The very same kind of pagan Canaanite that God has ordered Israel to go into Canaan and wipe them out completely. If you've been reading along, you know that Israel is supposed to go into the promised land and wipe out the Canaanites completely. And this is one of the biggest struggles that I have every time I read the Old Testament, but especially this book of Joshua. Um, how could God order the massacre of so many people? And I, and I want to I I stay here for just a second um, because I've gotten a lot, we've gotten a lot of questions about this. And my guess is that if you struggle with this book at all, you struggle specifically with the book of Joshua. This issue is at least one of them. And this is really hard for us to reconcile, this God ordering the destruction of a whole group of people as, as modern Western readers. Now, it's worth noting that even today, not every culture struggles with these stories the way that we do. Uh, there are some cultures today that, that, that are perfectly at home with God's judgment, and they struggle with God's radical forgiveness. But that's not, that's not us. That's not our culture. That's not our lens. Uh, for us, this kind of story is enough to rattle our, or even destroy our faith in a God who claims to be love right? Now, we aren't going to solve this. We can't answer all the questions that come up here, but I want to share just a few thoughts uh, that I've encountered as as I've been studying. I want to share them with you. Um, And the first thing we need to realize is that the Canaanites were not the nicest people in the world. And uh, in fact, the Canaanites were some of the most bloodthirsty people who have ever lived. Uh, They worshiped a pantheon of gods who gloried in bloodshed and in the oppression of people. Uh, They practiced religiously sanctioned incest and temple prostitution and many other despicable things, things that we would find shocking today. And and most shockingly, perhaps, they they practiced child sacrifice. They would burn alive their children to their gods to gain favor from them. So in other words, the land of Canaan, the people of Canaan, this is no paradise before the Israelites get there. And in Genesis 15, 16, we read that God gave Canaan 600 years to repent and turn to him. God is already talking about their sin back in Genesis, but he gives them time to repent. But God can only remain patient for so long with such evil happening in the world. And God, just so you know, he isn't playing favorites, okay? Later on in Israel's history, they are going to start doing the same practices that Canaan does, and God uses a nation to judge them just the same. So given that, with that in mind, we we have to acknowledge that God here is judging evil, is what he's doing. He's judging evil. This is not ethnic cleansing. It is not genocide. If it were, then Rahab would have no hope at all. But as we're going to see, she is spared. She's saved, despite her race. God loves the foreigner, in fact. So much of his law, so much of who he is, is about protecting the people that society most often ignores and neglects. People like the immigrant, people like the foreigner. God is also protecting Israel. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 18, God tells Israel to destroy Canaan, and here's the reason, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. 
Now, even with those things in mind, some of us, or maybe even most of us, still don't get it. We don't like this. We don't like that God judges people in general. Uh, Why can't God simply love everyone? He claims to be love. Shouldn't a God of love accept everyone? And those are really good questions, really. But the more I've thought about them and wrestled with them, the answer has to be no. The answer has to be no. As a parent, it is inevitable, and it's helpful to think of it this way, as a parent, it's inevitable that my love and devotion to my children will result in my anger and wrath against things that might hurt her. I am not accepting of the person who would cause her pain. I am not accepting of the person who would take her from me. I am not accepting of the person who would take my daughter and put things into her life that would hurt her. And I think everyone in here wouldn't argue with that definition of love, right? That is love. And, and And we have to know Israel's God's son. That's the language the Old Testament uses, his beloved son. Not, he, he's protecting Israel. He, he must protect them, not despite his love, but because of his love for them. And in a much broader sense, and this is God's vision all along in, in the Bible, the whole world, the creation itself, is beloved by him. And sin and evil in every form are a cancer destroying it. He must judge it. He must wipe it out. Ask any cancer survivor. Cancer cannot be coddled or accepted. It must be eradicated. We have to give God permission to make wise decisions about the destruction, the the destiny of the Canaanites, because we cannot trust our own intuition here. We don't have the big picture like he does. And God must, because he is loving, he must judge evil for what it is and in the way he sees fit. But here's the real question. As important as as the question is, as as the one we just addressed, the real question the story begs is that despite all the reasons we've just talked about, despite everything, right, that, that, that why the Canaanites are this tremendous threat to God's good plan for Israel, he does not judge Rahab. He saves her. He does not judge her. Why not? She is everything that Israel should be afraid of in Canaan. Everything. She doesn't know the law. She doesn't know the first thing about what it means to live in Israel. She, does, she was raised a pagan, a polytheist. She's completely sexually immoral with her job. She gets so much wrong, but she gets one thing right. One thing that God responds to, she is desperate. And her actions to save these spies, they show it. She's desperate. She knows everything is stacked against her, that God is about to judge her people. She's desperate, but that gives her a tremendous advantage in life. A tremendous advantage. Desperate people, people whose society neglects, they don't don't care about, they don't think about, people that don't have a reputation, or if they do, it's bad, people who don't have success to hide behind or protect them, tend to respond better to God than confident people do. You see, confident people listen, but only when they agree. They cannot be wrong. They have found success in what they do, or so they think, and so if it's not broke, why fix it? Desperate people, on the other hand, are ready for anything and they are ready to hear it from anyone. It's completely unexpected in the story of Rahab that she would choose the Israelite spies over her own people. That she would choose Yahweh, the God of Israel, over her own gods. This is not the action, this is not the decision of a confident person. 
A confident person would have trusted in in their government to save them. They would have trusted in the soldiers to save them. They would have trusted in their own reputation for having turned in the spies to save them. That's what a confident person would have done. But Rahab does none of that. This is an act of pure desperation on her part. Because she is convinced, and she's right, that the ship that is Jericho is going down fast. She knows she needs a savior. And it's like this. When, when a ship is going down, the confident person looks for the leak, right, to go fix it. I'm going to go fix it. The desperate person looks for a life raft. If you were on the Titanic, or if you were, lived in Canaan, which of those two kinds of people would you rather be? So how desperate are you? How desperate am I? How desperate are we? Here's a good indicator. Truly desperate people have no non-negotiables when it comes to God. No non-negotiables. Everything in the moment of crisis for them is on the table. Rahab, she puts her life, she puts her family on the line when she protects these spies because she's that desperate. She knows that this moment, either way she chooses, is life or death. What is non-negotiable in your life? What are you unwilling to let go of? What gives you confidence that you can handle the situation? Is it your reputation, right? Is it your money? Is it your security, your success? This list could go on and on. Is it your shame? Is it your guilt that you cannot confess? What is it? What is it that you would rather die than give up? And the shorter that list is, the more desperate you are. Because we all have to realize this, that just like Jericho, the life we now live is on the clock. It is in many ways a sinking ship. There will come a moment where in the midst of building our reputation or accumulating our stuff or pursuing our comfort of hiding in our shame, a trap door is going to open underneath us called death. And we will either fall into God's everlasting arms or we will fall into oblivion. And we will either be welcomed into God's family or we will go the way of Canaan. We should be just as desperate as Rahab because none of us deserve to be saved. And none of our non-negotiables are getting us anywhere that matters. So how desperate are you? Are you desperate enough to let God control your life, even the parts of it that terrify you? The parts you don't want anyone to know about? Is God, God is looking for desperate people. Are we one of them? We also learn God isn't just looking for desperate people in this story. He's looking for desperate faith. He's looking for desperate faith. And desperate faith, just like desperate people, it puts no stock in its own strength, but only in the strength of its object. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. So back in our story, the spies are hiding in Rahab's house, and word gets out to the king of Jericho that this is happening. So Jericho sends in, you know, Jericho homeland security, and they burst through the doors. But Rahab's hidden the spies. They they don't find them. And and again, this is truly shocking. Rahab is terrified, right? She's got to be terrified that the Israelite army, she knows, is just outside her city, just across the river. They're going to come in and destroy the city. Yet she saves her enemies, right, and lies to her own countrymen. Now her life is on the line. Either way, if the Canaanites find out she lied, she and her family are dead. If the Israelites win the fast-approaching battle, she's dead. 
So what does she do? What does she do? Well, she does what all desperate people do. She throws herself on the mercy of Israel's God. And so when the coast is clear, she goes up to the spies and in, in one of the purest expressions of desperate faith ever recorded in Scripture. Starting in verse 8, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now keep in mind that just like today, Rahab, just like us today, did not witness any of the miracles that she references in her, in her confession. She was not at the Red Sea. She did not see Israel defeat the kings across the Jordan. All she had were the rumors of this incredible God named Yahweh. These are the same rumors, in fact, that the soldiers looking for the spies had heard. The whole city of Jericho had heard these rumors. And both, I'm sure, Rahab and everyone else are terrified about what comes next for them. They don't know. But here's the difference. The soldiers have faith in themselves, in their ability to find these spies and to kill them. Rahab has faith in God and begs for mercy. She knows that without rescue outside of herself, she is done. She is finished. She will perish. Listen, we have to acknowledge this. Her faith in God at this point is very messy. It's very messy. She can't articulate the Apostles' Creed. She doesn't know what the Trinity is. She can't define atonement. She can't even name the Ten Commandments. She doesn't go to church. Her faith is messy. It's also very selfish. She is most concerned with saving her own skin. She wants to live, and she thinks Yahweh is the way to do it. But her faith is desperate. And that's what God is looking for. Her faith is desperate. It's messy, and it's selfish, but it's desperate. And her faith is completely unable to save her, and she knows that. But the object of her faith, God himself is able. Desperate faith puts no stock in religiosity, in spiritual words, or even in right living to save us. Desperate faith knows that it has nothing to offer God. Nothing. But it banks everything on his mercy, on his strength, on his character, on his promises. And God responds to that. And Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, he puts it this way, desperate faith. He says, imagine you are falling off of a cliff and sticking out of the cliff is a branch that is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab that branch and how much faith Do you have to have in that branch for it to save you? Must you be totally sure it can save you? Well, no, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab the branch. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's, It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. Rahab is falling off of a cliff, and God is the only branch she has left. She barely knows him. She has never spoken to him. She does not follow him. 
But in a desperate act of faith, she reaches out and finds this branch, and the branch saves her. Not the strength of her grip. The branch saves her. So what do we think will save us? What saves us? Does Jesus save you? Or do you think your prayer life saves you? Or your Bible reading? Or do you think it's your church attendance saves you? Your good reputation? You're you're a good person, that's what saves you. These are good things, but none of them will save you when you fall off the cliff. None of them. And one good indicator of this in your life is is if you do not feel the freedom to approach God in your messiness. If you do not feel the freedom to do that, it means that you cannot be honest with God. It means that you have to clean yourself up before you talk to him or ask him for things. It means that your approach to God is a lot like my mother's approach to an overnight stay in the hotel, right? You've got to make the bed before the maid gets there. <laughs> because you don't think she can handle the mess. You don't think he can handle the mess. You don't think God can handle your mess. You don't think he can handle the real you. And so you hide it. You tell him what you think he wants to hear instead of what you actually want to say. You hide your weakness. You hide your failure. If this is you, you have more faith in your faith than you do in God. But maybe you aren't religious at all. Maybe you don't consider yourself a very virtuous person. In fact, you're anything but. This story gives you hope. Because God will meet you right there. He is not waiting for you to clean yourself up. If he will meet Rahab exactly where she is, he will meet you. In fact, that's the you he wants to deal with. Not the spiritual facade that you think you need to put on before you pray to him, before you come to church. Desperate faith trusts God, not appearances, not our own strength. And yes, God is working to transform us. He wants us to make He wants to make us more like him. That's all true. But God loves you, the real you. Not the you you think you should be. Will you let him save you instead of trying to save yourself? Will you let him? Because as desperate as you are, as desperate as I am, God is even more desperate to show mercy to you. He's looking to show mercy. That's the last thing we learn in this story. God is looking for a chance to show mercy. Despite Rahab's less than ideal family and pedigree and her day job, despite her messy faith and and her questionable character, God jumps at the chance to save her. She and her entire family are saved from destruction, which is the fate uh, of the Canaanites. And in Joshua 6, which if you're reading in the the whole story you read today, we learn that when Jericho is destroyed, Rahab and her family are spared. He is desperate to show mercy wherever he can. And it's interesting to me that as we've been reading along and open here, we've been reading through the Old Testament, that smack dab in the middle of Moses giving the law in Deuteronomy, between that and Joshua going into the land and conquering the Canaanites, there is this short story about the rescue of a pagan prostitute the very last kind of person we think would enter into God's family. No one sees that coming. And yet there she is, warts and all, in God's family. God is just, and he will judge, and he must judge. We've talked about that. Scripture is more than clear on that front, but with God, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what James says in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 13. 
As real as God's anger is at sin, and the sin that ravages his good world, his, his mercy is more real. It is more permanent. It is more lasting. And in the end, it triumphs. And he longs for that day even more than we do. He is so desperate to save Rahab, he literally sent missionaries into her bedroom in the form of these two spies. They had no idea, but they were ambassadors of God's grace. And think about it. This this mission of the spies is completely useless from a military perspective. The spies return and they tell Joshua essentially everything God had told him in chapter 1 before they went into the land. They get no new information and they gather no intelligence. So why did they go? Why were they sent? Why was the destruction of a city halted for three days? Why? Mercy. Mercy. Mercy for one person, one family. And they, they, all they did is they moved one inch toward God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God still halts the judgment of this world for mercy's sake. And he is so desperate to save us, to rescue us from the judgment we deserve, that he sent his son into this world. He showed up in the flesh. He invites us into his family. He showed up at our back door. And he looks at us in our messy faith and our selfish faith, and he says, believe in me. Trust in me, and I will save you. I will rescue you. This is the God who loves desperate people. He loves the outcast. He loves the least expected. He rescues Rahab. He will rescue us too. And as desperate as we are, he is even more desperate to save us. Let's pray to him. Father, we are amazed at your grace that meets us exactly where we are, exactly who we are, with all of our problems, with all of our selfishness. You meet us in our desperation and you say, trust me, believe in me, and I will save you. Father, I pray that you make us the kind of desperate people that look to you over and over and over again for our rescue. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.